Shinyeld, Oreshkotesh, Frankchevalier Balion, Chi Oresh Bonachanson, Don Diversion Cheon. Lords, listen, Frank Knights so valiant, you will hear a good song whose verses will please you. De França, que diesh paramatant, que outra mela lerunt, de chepulcra gera. The barons of France, whom God loved so much, who went beyond the sea seeking the holy sepulchre. Vengeance, prendra de pule mescreant, tu droit vers Antiochus vonta geminant. To take vengeance on the unbelieving people, straight to Antioch they go forward. Dolce gent hardia, stoita cele terra. The sweet people, so hardy were in this land, which was foreign to them, and where there is no good. They go thirty leagues around to look for meat. In the anguish of hunger, no one knows what to do. The barons who sought to conquer the pagans' loot. Who, when they encountered the Turks, made great war against them. Are now without food, they suffer greatly. May the Lord deign to save them, he who can very well do it. Very weakened was the army for lack of food. One cannot help the other, either in fact or in word. The shortage had so crudely surprised them that for poverty they ate russets. The good horses of Spain are so tormented by hunger that they eat their harnesses and tear their hair, their reins. Bachelors and sergeants, fresh-faced maidens, tear their clothes and cry out. God help us, you who were put on the cross. By the anguish of hunger, everyone turned pale. Then the storms fall, the snow and the sleet, the lightning and the storm from which many are affected. There was not a baron, however powerful, who was not wonderfully frightened by it. Horses and mules do such trampling, vultures and gerfalcons make such a flapping of wings, that from a whole league they were heard. If the Lord God does not think of it, the King of Paradise, this holy company will be exterminated. Then, Godfrey of Bouillon spoke, this hardy one. Lords, Frank Christians, for the God of heaven, do not be afraid if the times are hard. For God's sake, we are in this country. 
He will not suffer his people to be ashamed. Never, for any distress, shall the seat be left until we have taken Antioch and the arched palace. Then we will take the sepulchre where God was dead and alive. We will deliver him from all his enemies. We will break down the walls and fences of Mecca. We will take Muhammad out of it who is sitting in the air. And the two candlesticks that are set before him. Which were once taken from Rome for tribute. But they shall not be extinguished. They shall burn forever. They would burn in the sea. Until the day of judgment, they would be better in the sepulchre placed before the altar than where the devil is honored and served. And the barons answer, they will be conquered too. God preserved the land where each of them was nurtured and all the lineage that begat them. Each one of them is so animated by value that the Lord of Glory will hold them as his sons from the beginning until the day of judgment. The pilgrims of peace will always be blessed. Who took the sepulchre where God lay dead and all the earth where his body was nourished. The Turks were wounded by this, and thus will they always be. Very great was the famine. One must speak of it. That which the Christians suffered. To save their souls. And welcome to History of the Ultramar, episode 2.26, At the Gates. Today, we're talking about the Siege of Antioch, but only part of it. The entirety of the Siege of Antioch went from October 20th, 1097, all the way to June 28th, 1098. That's eight months. Just to remind you, the Siege of Nicaea had started in June of 1097. It took only four months to get from the Roman Empire to Antioch. It would take twice as long to conquer Antioch. And for a quick comparison, the Siege of Jerusalem, looming in our future, will only last about five weeks. 
the extreme nature of the Siege of Antioch will mean that it becomes the focal point of many crusade narratives. Our opening today is from one of those narratives, the Chanson d'Antioche, a popular chanson de geste from the late 12th century, around the time of the Third Crusade. We talked about this uh, chanson back in episode 2.3. Despite the fact that it first appears over a century and a half after the First Crusade, in the lyrics, the troubadour, Grandor of Dwe, claims to be carrying the torch for an earlier troubadour he identifies as Richard the Pilgrim, who Grandor claims was present at the Siege of Antioch. We have no idea how true any of this is. As I've mentioned before, the chanson bears a striking resemblance to the account of Albert of Aachen. To refresh your memory, Albert's history was based primarily on the first-hand accounts of returning Lorrainers, most of whom had served in the army of Godfrey of Bouillon. The focus on Godfrey's army is such that Albert's account has often been taken to be little more than propaganda for Godfrey. However, details such as Godfrey's foolishness when fighting a bear indicate that while Albert likely had a soft spot for Godfrey, he wasn't averse to including details that painted him in an unflattering light. Nevertheless, Godfrey did play a starring role in Albert's account, and that's one of the parallels with the Chanson d'Antioche, which, as we heard in the opening, used Godfrey as a mouthpiece for eloquent speeches of purpose. This is the precursor to the full-on mythologizing that would be done centuries later by guys like Torquato Tasso, who we talked about back in episode 2.15. But if Godfrey was the star, the set-piece battle was the siege of Antioch. The suffering and, quote-unquote, bravery of the pilgrims made it very attractive as the First Crusade equivalent to the Battle of Helm's Deep. As Thomas Asbridge puts it in The First Crusade, A New History, quote, The Crusaders arrived in Syria, on the northern borders of the Holy Land, in the late summer of 1097. Jerusalem, their ultimate goal, was nearly within their grasp. It was tantalizingly close, perhaps only a month's journey to the south. Unfortunately for the Crusaders, a massive obstacle stood in their way. Antioch, one of the greatest cities of the Orient, guarded the route south to Palestine. The Latins laid siege to this city, entering into one of the most brutal, grueling, and prolonged military engagements of the Middle Ages. The Crusades stalled in northern Syria for one and a half years, and at this moment, more than any other, its future lay tortuously balanced between utter annihilation and miraculous success. The very concept of crusading was tested to breaking point in the fires of this conflict, and ultimately emerged more powerfully and permanently forged. End quote. As Asbridge says, Antioch was a decisive moment for the entire concept of crusading. We could even say it was the birthplace of the crusading movement that would run through the veins of the later Middle Ages. Since the moment the emperor Alexios had extracted oaths from the crusaders, the direction of the army had been determined by a joint Franco-Byzantine strategy. In the broadest terms possible, the army was relying on the empire's support to complete a pilgrimage. In return, they were paving the way for Roman reconquest of their eastern territories. The pilgrimage and the reconquest were all tied up with each other. Both aims were viewed as holy and righteous, and as ways for the members of the army to gain absolution of their sins. These religious aspects of what drove the Crusaders were likely alien to Alexios. The Greeks didn't have the same tradition of penitential pilgrimages, and the way the Franks expressed their faith was particular to them. 
The violence associated with religious expression was something that no doubt seemed as bizarre to Alexios as it does to us. The pogroms in the Rhineland, the sacking of cities like Zemun. These had been curbed thus far. Alexios had maneuvered events at Nicaea to avoid a repeat of Zemun and the Rhineland. At Antioch, religious fervor would once again boil over, as the suffering Christians turned to zealotry in an attempt to make sense of their situation. And another aspect would come to the surface as well. Good old-fashioned greed. Of course, there were other less noble reasons that had driven individual pilgrims to take up the cross. That's why oaths had been necessary in the first place. Alexios was no fool. But even respecting their oaths, many knights saw a chance for improving their position by gaining glory in battle or loot in a siege. But as the knights and nobles moved farther away from Constantinople, those oaths seemed less and less important. The sheer length of the siege of Antioch and its associated hardships would drive the nobles to find ways to make the whole endeavor worth it, monetarily speaking. The specter of religious fervor and avarice at Antioch would remain characterizing elements of crusading up until the modern day. The idea of the crusade as a way to unite western and eastern branches of Christianity, that has pretty much faded away entirely. So today, we're going to be focusing on the events of Antioch from October 20th up until early December. So October 20th is where we left off last time. The army had defeated the Turkish garrison at the Iron Bridge. The Turks fled back to the safety of Antioch, wherein waited the Turkish governor, Yagi Siyan, known as Cassian in many Frankish sources. One source describes him in the following way. His head was of enormous size, the ears very wide and hairy, his hair was white, and he had a beard which flowed from his chin to his navel. Sounds kind of like Santa Claus to me. They call me back no Santa. Anyway, Yagi Sian's political position was complicated. As we talked about last time, after the collapse of Seljuk control in the region, Yagi Sian had shown an interest in independence. To this end, he'd benefited greatly from the conflict between the sons of his former boss, Ridwan in Aleppo and Dukak in Damascus. For Yagi Siyan, it would be very difficult to negotiate any sort of aid from Ridwan, who he'd betrayed only a year earlier. Meanwhile, aid from Ridwan's brother, Dukak, would likely imply some sort of submission to Damascus. There was also the great Seljuk Sultan, Berkiruk, Malik Shah's son, who held court in Baghdad. But the whole reason Seljuk power in the Levant had vanished was Berkiruk's feeble hold on the empire as a whole. He was still fighting his brother, cousin, or uncle, or whatever, to the east. There was another option, though. Kerboga, the Turkmen warlord who'd fought for more than one side during the early days of the Seljuk Civil War. Kerboga had been captured by Tutush, but later freed, and then he'd taken Mosul. He was nominally in service to Birkiruk, but like most of those around, he was eager to make a name for himself. Basically, Yagi Sihan was running the risk of any of these fools taking Antioch from him, if he invited them in. But with the Crusaders on the way, he didn't have much choice but to run that risk. The Latins seemed to have been aware of the basic outlines of Middle Eastern politics, though. Albert of Aachen describes Yagi Sian's reaction with about 70% accuracy. Quote, 
a messenger, hurrying from the Turks, sped across to the tower and palace of Yagisiyan, the ruler of Antioch, which is in the mountains. He revealed to him the extent of their losses and suggested that unless Yagisiyan took diligent and careful precautions, he would soon lose Antioch and all its adjoining territories. King Yagi Siyan, an aged man, heard of the irreversible destruction of his men. Up until that point, he had slept soundly in his upper room through all the fighting and outcome of different affairs. Now, for the first time, he was distressed, and with a deep sigh, he summoned his son, Sansandonius, and all the men of first rank who were his subjects, to his council. Among those in the presence of this same ruler was Suleiman, who had been driven out of Nicaea and the lands of Rum, and the aforesaid Yagisian addressed him, asking him in all earnestness to become the bearer of his message, knowing him to be a man of eloquence and very renowned in all the kingdoms of the Gentiles, saying to him, Neighbor of my people, you shall set out for Khurasan in the land and kingdom of our birth, with twelve legates from me and my son, Sansindonius, Copatrix, and Adorsonius, two of the most faithful of my princes, shall go with you on this legation to make complaint of our injuries. As you travel through, summon Ridwan of the city of Aleppo, our brother and friend to our assistance. In this same way, call him Pulagit, whose soldiers and weapons are plentiful, to bring us aid, because he is allied to us by a permanent treaty. Moreover, expand our misfortunes and injuries to the royal sultan of Khurasan, who is the chief and prince of the Turks, and suggest that Kerboga, the sultan's friend, should produce for me auxiliary resources and troops. Let my scribe and secretary be called, so that you may carry with you letters and my seal, so that they might believe our difficulties more confidently." For very many days have passed since at the beginning of this siege of this city, my son Bulldogus preceded you to Khurasan to inform our brothers and princes of the arrival of the Christian people and to warn everyone against them so they would come to our assistance. End quote. Well, to start with, it's very unlikely that Kilij Arslan, who Albert calls Suleiman, was present at Antioch for all this. He had other shit to deal with. Albert just wants to add continuity to the story. Suleiman was the tough guy in Anatolia, so he can't just dip out of the story all of a sudden. Second, although the exact speech is made up, obviously, it seems Yagisian did send his sons to seek aid from Aleppo, Damascus, and most importantly, Mosul. He probably did send them to Baghdad as well. Albert just refers to Khurasan, which seems to be how he refers to all the Seljuk Empire. Also, the Aleppan historian Kemal ad-Din, born about a century after these events, says that Yagisian's second son, who Albert calls Buldagis, was actually named Muhammad. Which is just so much more boring. It's like the most common name in the world, I think literally. I'm mostly including this fact because Kamal ad-Din will be a source again in a bit here, so this way you can remember he's an Aleppan historian born around a century after the First Crusade. He'll be an important source for us much later on as well. He had contact with the Ayyubids, the Mongols, and the Assassins. Anyway, it would take some time before any of Yagisian's diplomatic missions bore any fruit. For now, the governor of Antioch was on his own. However, even though his political position was not the best, Yagi Sion could at least content himself with the fact that Antioch was damn near impregnable. Raymond of Aguilé describes the city in the following way, quote, The city extends 
two miles in length and is so protected with walls, towers, and defenses that it may dread neither the attack of machine nor the assault of man, even if all mankind gathered to besiege it. So let's do some basic geography here. The city had been built at the base of two huge peaks, Mount Stalrin and Mount Silpius, which blocked off the western side entirely. And on the east, the city was hemmed in by the Orontes River. On top of its natural defenders, the city also had a 5-kilometer-long wall surrounding it, 20 meters high and 2 meters thick, dotted with hundreds of towers. And the cherry on top was the fucking citadel, which had been constructed near the peak of one of the western mountains. Good luck taking that. Bye-bye, boys! Have fun storming the castle! Think it'll work? It would take a miracle. Bye-bye! Six main gates guarded the passage to the city. The crusaders named these, one, the Gate of St. Paul, which lay at the end of the northern road from the Iron Bridge. On the east were, two, the Gate of the Dog, three, the Gate of the Duke, and four, the Gate of the Bridge, which controlled the only bridge that crossed over the Orontes River. Facing south was five, the Gate of St. George, and nestled between the two western mountains was six, the Gate of Iron, which stands to this day. I've uploaded an image map thingy to the website, but basically, the city was impossible to take by force and impossible to surround completely. The army could surround the northern gates, the St. Paul, Dog, and Duke, but they would have to schlep themselves 12 kilometers south to cross the Orontes if they wanted to get at the gate of the bridge or to the southern gate of St. George. And the gate of iron in the mountains was impossible to block. A small force would have to enter the mountains from the north and follow a skinny gorge for more than a kilometer over treacherous mountain passages towards the gate, cut off from reinforcements and basically serving themselves up to the 5,000 strong Turkish garrison within the city. Yeah, this was some like Mission Impossible shit. So that was the situation on October 20th, when the army arrived at the city, fresh off their victory over the garrison at the Iron Bridge. Remember, that's that bridge some kilometers away from the city. So pro tip, don't do what I did and confuse the Iron Bridge with the Gate of Iron, or the Gate of the Bridge. They're three different things. The Orontes is also sometimes known as the Farfar, which is sometimes related to the word for iron in Latin, ferrum, which is, you know, like, like ferrous and that sort of thing. And so sometimes it's like called the Iron River and you get a fucking iron bridge gates. Just keep it straight. I'm going to just talk about the Orontes, but it's called the Farfar sometimes. And the Iron Bridge, the Gate of Iron or Iron Gate, and the Bridge Gate or Gate of the Bridge. Those are the three things we need to keep straight. Got it? Good. So, what to do? Raymond of Toulouse seems to have advocated for a direct assault on the city at this point. God was with them, he claimed, and would bring them victory. The other crusaders, with a firmer grip on reality, were not convinced. The Greek envoy, Titikios, seems to have recommended a hands-off approach, which apparently is how the Romans had taken the city back in the 10th century. The army could hang around the vicinity during the winter and wait for reinforcements from both Constantinople and Europe at large. Remember that Tancred and Baldwin had only recently run into random ships from the west. 
We'll be talking about those ships in a second here. Just hold on. Uh, there was the expectation that more armies would come, and with them, the Crusaders could fully surround the city and really stamp out any resistance. In the end, a sort of middle ground was found. The army would not directly attack the city, but they would start a partial siege immediately, surrounding the three gates they could easily access. Bowman, Tancred, and the other Italo-Normans took the northern St. Paul Gate. Raymond of Toulouse took the Dog Gate, and Godfrey of Bouillon took the Gate of the Duke. I can't actually confirm this with any sources, but I'm pretty sure the nickname Gate of the Duke was inspired by the fact that that's where Duke Godfrey set up his camp. The northern Frenchmen under Stephen of Blois and the two Roberts, Kurt Hose and otherwise, positioned themselves in between the St. Paul Gate and the Dog Gate. The other three gates, the Gate of the Bridge and the Gate of St. George, which would have required the army to cross the Orontes, as well as the Gate of Iron, which would have required the army to travel through the mountains, were all left unmolested, as the army would have had to send a small, isolated contingent to attack either of them, and risk that force being overwhelmed by a counterattack. The outset of the Siege of Antioch really shows the Crusading army in peak form, though. In the most recent episodes, we've discussed how the army had made contact with local Armenians and left them in control of their western flank. Tancred had even secured the pass up through Cilicia back towards Constantinople and the coastal town of Alexandretta. The Knights of the First Crusade laid siege to the city of Alexandretta for over a year. He had probably not left any secret maps there, though. The army had also taken the key cities that defended Antioch from an eastern attack. The Crusaders had also somehow gained possession of two other port cities, St. Simeon, very close to Antioch, and Laodicea, some miles further south on the Syrian coast. It seems Robert, Duke of Normandy, actually spent quite a lot of time in Laodicea instead of at the siege, and we'll be talking more about these ports later on. All of this not only strengthened their position, but ensured that they had open supply and reinforcement routes. The Crusaders also seemed to have done some sort of diplomatic work in the region. A letter written by Stephen of Blois in early 1098 mentions that Yagi Sion had sent his sons to ask for aid, which shows that uh, what Albert of Aachen reports was known pretty early on. And during the early months of the siege, all this effort paid off. The anonymous author of the Justifran Quorum writes, quote, we marvelously besieged three gates of the city. However, on the other side, we did not have enough space to set up a siege, because a mountain, high and sheer, hindered us. In the meanwhile, the Turks, our enemy, who were inside the city, were so afraid of us that none of them dared attack us for a period of 15 days. Soon we were living around the city, and we found a great abundance in the surroundings, namely, much fruit on the vine, pits full of grain, trees with lots of apples on them, and many more good things that the body needs." End quote. Inside the city, Yagi Sion was likely panicking. He almost certainly assumed the crusaders to be the vanguard of a huge Roman force come to take back the city. Tales of the defeats this army of barbarians had visited on the Turkmen of Anatolia had likely reached his ears as well and scared the bejesus out of him. He seems to have decided to do some recon before engaging in his own strategy of attrition sending out small forces to harass the besieging forces. The anonymous author says, quote, The Armenians and Syrians who were inside the city came out and showed themselves as if they were fleeing. Daily they came to us, and all the while their wives were inside the city. They cleverly found out things from us about our situation, and then reported everything back to those who were inside the city. 
after the Turks became sufficiently informed about everything that concerned us, they gradually began to come out of the city and began to hem us in, not only from one side, but wherever they could lie in ambush along our path, either toward the sea or toward the mountain. End quote. So, yeah, remember that this had been a Roman city until very recently, and like all the former Roman cities of the area, mostly populated by Armenian and Syrian Christians. Yagisian's reaction to these Eastern Christians was twofold. He used them as spies, as Anonymous indicates, sending them to gather information among the Crusaders, but he also saw in them possible fifth columns. We can turn to Fulcher of Shatra for some information here, even though Fulcher was actually not present at the time because he was off with Baldwin of Boulogne, who has been conspicuously absent this episode, hasn't he? Anyway, Fulcher says, It happened on a certain day that the Franks killed 700 Turks, and the Turks, who set ambushes for the Franks, were overcome by the Franks lying in ambush. The strength of God was present there. All our men retreated uninjured, with the exception of one whom they wounded. Alas, how many Christians, Greeks, Syrians, and Armenians who lived in the city were killed by the maddened Turks. With the Franks looking on, they threw outside the walls the heads of those killed, with their petriae and slings. This especially grieved our people. Holding these Christians in hatred, the Turks feared, lest by some chance they give the Franks information to their own detriment. End quote. Yagi Sian also soon realized that a Frankish assault was not imminent, and after two weeks, he started to mount small forays outside of the walls to harass the Latins. The Turks would exit through the unprotected Iron Gate, climb up Mount Staurin, and rain volleys of arrows down on the Franks. And they would also sneak out the bridge gate over the Orontes and shoot arrows at the Franks on the opposite side. The Franks had set themselves up quite nicely with access to sea routes, but the fact that the Turkish garrison had so many ways of sneaking out of the siege meant that their supply chain was constantly threatened by raiding parties. What's more, it's hard to starve someone out if they can just pop out and go pick up supplies elsewhere. Attempts were first made to attack and then just block the Iron Gate, but that was only one problem. They also needed to gain mobility across the Orontes River so that they could actually stop the Turks from coming out those gates. And that led to a rather creative solution, the Bridge of Boats. The Bridge of Boats was some fucking MacGyver shit. They just lashed together a bunch of small boats and laid them across the Orontes River. Now, People on foot could somewhat clumsily make their way across, but as it turns out, horses don't really have the dexterity required to jump in and out of bobbing boats to cross a raging river. At least not quickly. Albert of Aachen tells us of one incident in which Henry of Esch got real fed up with the whole thing. Quote, Now when they had finished making the bridge by bringing and joining together boats, 300 Christians, both knights and foot soldiers, crossed the river Orontes one day to look for fodder for the horses and for vital supplies. The Turks, realizing this and watching from the ramparts, hastily assembled allies, took weapons and quivers, and mounted their horses to sally forth likewise across the stone bridge of the city, and they appeared unexpectedly behind the Christians set out to forage. This left very many of the Christians' bodies thrown to the ground with their heads cut off. They pursued others who had the opportunity to flee all the way to the new bridge. Lucky men who were able to escape so cruel an enemy. 
others who were making for the fords because the new bridge was denied to them on account of the great number of people fleeing were suffocated when the current swept them away to die as they fled before the Turks. When news of the great disaster reached the army chiefs, nearly 5,000 armed, as many put on hauberks, and they swept out of the tents on horseback to force back the audacious enemy. Henry, son of Fredolo of the castle of Esch, keen to pursue the enemy as he was very famous in warfare and deeds, swam across the river on horseback, although he was weighed down by hauberk and helmet and shield, for he could not wait to cross the ship bridge because of the long delay. The very deep waters closed over his head as he recklessly entered the waves with his horse. Nevertheless, with God protecting him, whose favor placed life before danger, he reached dry land alive and unhurt, and still sitting on his horse, along with the others who swam across. And continuing tenaciously in the pursuit of the Turks, he was undaunted as he urged his comrades, cavalry and infantry, to chase them right to that very town bridge and so some of the Turks were held back. Others escaped with difficulty, and they summoned to their aid with a loud noise of shouting their allied forces who were gathered at the Orontes Bridge and on the gate. And in the rush and noise of the relieving troops, they were giving their horses their heads, and they turned into a serious rout the Gauls, who had up until then been pursuing them, driving them back to the very bridge they had made of ships. Very many infantry died, shot by Turkish arrows in this severe harrying and driving into the water by the Turks, and the swift flight and retreat of the Christians to the bridge. Many at the rear, seeing that death was imminent and putting their only hope of escape in the water, were carried into the waves of the deep river. Not a few of them were seen to be submerged by the water and to risk drowning and death. Others, with their very horses and shields and hauberks, were falling from the bridge because of the pressure from those fleeing, and they sank under the waters and died, and were never seen again." End quote. This basically remained the situation, as the days turned into weeks and the weeks into months. The Frankish forces were also harassed by a garrison of Turks that were streaming out of some other unknown tower. Around mid-November, Bowman decided to take a chance and set out to exterminate this garrison. I'll let Anonymous tell this tale, in his trademark laconic style. Quote, Not far off lay a castle which was called Areg, and where a great number of the bravest Turks had gathered, who often harassed our men. Our leaders, when they heard of this, were very upset and troubled, and so they sent some of their warriors to diligently search for that place where the Turks were. When our men had found the place where they were hiding, our warriors, who were searching for them, went forth to meet them. But little by little, our men fell back to where they knew Bohemond waited with his army. Very quickly, two of our men were killed then. When Bohemond heard this, he hurled forward with his men, like the boldest athlete of Christ. The barbarians burst upon our men, for our men were few, who nevertheless joined battle. Indeed, many of our enemies were killed, and the captives were led before the city gate, where they were beheaded in order to increase the suffering of those inside the city. End quote. Yeah, it sounds like Bohemond basically did the typical sort of Turkmen retreat, the typical style of nomad warriors since time immemorial, send a small force out, pretend to retreat, and then ambush them. Oh, by the way, Areg is probably better identified as the Fortress of Harim. And the beheading of captured soldiers in front of Antioch's walls? 
only highlights the increasing violence in this conflict. We already mentioned what happened to the Christians of the city, um, but Thomas Asbridge also summarizes various other events of bloodletting collected from the different sources. Quote, the Muslims regularly dragged the Greek Christian patriarch of Antioch, who had until then lived peacefully in the city, up to the battlements, hung him upside down from the walls, and beat his feet with iron rods in sight of the crusaders. Any captured Latin could expect comparable treatment. Adelbaro, archdeacon of Metz, was caught playing a game of dice with a young woman in an orchard near the city. He was beheaded on the spot, she taken back to Antioch, repeatedly raped and then killed. The following morning, their heads were catapulted into the crusader camp. These acts may appear to be utterly barbaric by modern standards, but they were a staple feature of medieval warfare and became a consistent theme of the siege of Antioch. In viewing such events, we must try to temper our instinctive judgment with an awareness that in the 11th century, war was governed by medieval, not modern codes of practice. Within the context of a holy war, in which Franks were conditioned to see their enemy as subhuman, Christian piety prompted not clemency, but rather an atmosphere of extreme brutality and heightened savagery. End quote. What we had here was a pressure cooker, slowly getting hotter and hotter. At the last big siege, Nicaea, the Roman emperor Alexios had been able to prevent mass slaughter, but he wasn't around anymore. However, I do want to provide a contrast to the idea of the Crusaders as psychotic marauders. We have hit on that theme multiple times throughout the podcast, but the army was not a monolith, and its behavior at Antioch also hints at a deep level of coordination and strategy, coordinating with both Latin Europe as well as Constantinople. This coordination was exemplified through naval contact, which is what we'll be talking about to finish today's episode. As Albert of Aachen briefly mentioned earlier, the bridge of boats allowed the Crusaders access to the port of St. Simeon. As Thomas Asbridge summarizes, quote, The bridge of boats may have been a rather ramshackle affair, but as the siege continued, it gave the Crusaders a crucial advantage, access to the sea. The crossing allowed them to set up a more secure line of contact with Antioch's nearest port, St. Simeon, named in honor of the 5th century Christian hermit who had for decades lived near Aleppo, in isolation atop a stone pillar. From this point onwards, the Mediterranean proved to be a vital lifeline for the Crusaders, a conduit of contact, supply, and reinforcement. Overland, the journey to Europe might take months. By sea, under the most favorable conditions, it could be completed in two weeks. Indeed, naval contact actually allowed crusaders to send letters back to their homelands. We know that the crusaders benefited enormously from naval aid. In fact, one could argue that the expedition would have failed without it. But our sources seem strangely reluctant to discuss it in any detail. In strategic terms, St. Simeon was certainly as important as either Arta or the Iron Bridge, yet we have no clear account of the port's conquest or occupation. End quote. As a prelude for how important they would become in the decades to come, some of the first reinforcements to arrive were ships from the Republics of Italy. On the 17th of November, 13 Genoese ships arrived laden with reinforcements and supplies to the port of St. Simeon. This is the second big reference to backup arriving via ships. If you recall, back in episode 2.24, there were also some North Sea pirates led by a certain Winnemere. We'll talk about him again in just a moment here. 
Logistically, we know that naval support was key during the First Crusade, but as Asbridge mentions when talking about the lack of information about how St. Simeon was captured, it doesn't seem like our sources agree with that, because they're pretty tight-lipped about the whole thing. In Victory in the East, John France delves into the issue. I'll quote some relevant bits here. We hear a good deal about naval activity in support of the crusade. Ships from Genoa, Pisa, Venice, Greece, and England are all mentioned as being active during the crusade. Of their value to the crusaders, there can be no doubt at all. By Christmas 1097, the army had eaten up everything in the immediate vicinity of Antioch, and, despite its ability to draw upon a friendly hinterland across which much of the army had dispersed, was forced to mount major military expeditions to fend off starvation. In these circumstances, food brought in by sea was probably a vital element in sustaining the army. Raymond of Aguilet speaks of western ships plying to Cyprus and protecting Greek shipping engaged in the same task, and the visionary Peter Bartholomew sought food in Cyprus, while Baldrick mentions that the sailors and merchants living by the coast were killed during the second siege of Antioch. Ralph of Gaunt says that goods were imported into Laodicea from Cyprus and sent on to Antioch. Indeed, Cyprus seems to have played a key role as a source of food and supply for the army. When the leaders discussed their strategy with Alexios at Constantinople at Pelicanum, Cyprus must have been seen as a very important supply base. The Crusaders arrived at Antioch about 20th October 1097. By the end of the month, Ademar, the papal legate, was sending a letter back to the west in conjunction with Simeon, patriarch of Jerusalem, who is known to have been a refugee in Cyprus at this time, during which he sent lavish presents to the crusaders at Antioch. When Alexios promised to send supplies to the crusaders, he was presumably thinking of Cyprus, the convenience of which, for the projected siege of Antioch, would have been known not only to the emperor, but to all concerned. Most trading ships making for the Levant would have used Cyprus as a port of call, and it was certainly known to the pilgrims. Ralph of Caen says that during the siege of Antioch, Robert of Normandy resided at Laodicea, but sent food brought from Cyprus to the main camp at Antioch. It is remarkable that chroniclers as hostile to the Byzantines as Ralph of Caen and Raymond of Aguilet mention Cyprus as a source of food for the army. This underlines the importance of the Byzantine alliance. The food and supplies they had received made it difficult to argue that Alexios had never supported them, and there was the prospect of more yet to come. This logistical and naval support was essential for the Crusaders. It is hardly possible to believe that without such Byzantine help, they could have survived the Siege of Antioch. The naval power of the Greeks in the West, which was concentrated in the Levant, was absolutely essential to the success of the Crusade. For although the reinforcements they brought were probably few, their skills were of great importance to the land army. Sea power was a vital element in the success of the Crusade, but unfortunately it is very poorly chronicled, and the particulars of its exercise are hidden from us. We know that a Genoese fleet of 13 ships came into Levantine waters in November 1097, but we do not know how long it stayed, or whether the two ships which appeared at Jaffa during the Siege of Jerusalem were part of it, or had come later. Pisan and Venetian ships are mentioned only in passing, and we are given some highly confusing information about the English. End quote. Not only is our information incomplete as to who was arriving, it's also incomplete as to where they were arriving, and how these ports were captured. Turning once again to France, quote, 
we are very poorly informed on the question of ports. During the siege of Antioch, three major channels of supply are mentioned. The ports of Cilicia, Mamistra, Alexandretta, and Tarsus. Laodicea on the Syrian coast, and St. Simeon, which was the port of Antioch, some 27 kilometers away, at the mouth of the Orontes. St. Simeon's port was by far the most convenient of these, for it was very close to Antioch, but the road passed in front of the bridge gate, and so the Turks could easily attack people traveling down to the sea. Gaffaro of Genoa has a vivid description of the fighting on the road to Antioch in November 1097, when the Genoese fleet of 13 ships put into St. Simeon. Alexandretta was more than 60 kilometers away, and to reach it involved a march over the Amanis Range, via a road which Ralph of Khan described as very difficult. It also led from the bridge gate, so the early stages of any journey would be difficult. Laodicea was over 80 kilometers distant, and was not materially closer to Cyprus than St. Simeon. We know that the cities of Cilicia were captured by the forces of Baldwin and Tancred, but the question of how and when St. Simeon and Laodicea fell to the Crusaders is much more difficult. There is no mention of them being captured by any element of the army. End quote. So France goes deeper into the sources, which are, surprise, surprise, contradictory. Depending on who you ask, one or both of St. Simeon and Laodicea were taken by North Sea pirates English crusaders, or Varangians in the service of the Roman Emperor. No matter what the truth of the thing is, something fucky's going on. Let's dive into these versions real quick. Albert of Aachen doesn't have really much information about St. Simeon, but he does tell us a bit about Laodicea. So remember back in episode 2.24, we talked about Winimir, a Frisian pirate with some possible connections to Godfrey of Bouillon and Baldwin of Boulogne's family from Lorraine. They had been pirating for eight years, then stumbled upon Baldwin at Tarsus in Cilicia. They then helped Baldwin garrison Tarsus, and apparently then they dated Tancred, who'd come to blows with Baldwin, in taking other port cities like Alexandretta. Well, that's all he has to say about them at that point. But later on, right before talking about a random battle in 1098, Albert randomly goes on a tangent and relates what had happened to Winimir. He says Winimir had taken Laodicea, then apparently been disregarded by the army because he didn't contribute enough, and at some point later on, the Greeks had captured him and threw him in jail at Laodicea. Godfrey of Bouillon had to negotiate his release, which he did because of these alleged family ties. What makes Albert's story harder to believe is that he has a different version he includes in the epilogue to the crusade, after the siege of Jerusalem. In this one, Winimir had help from some Danes and Raymond of Toulouse in taking Laodicea. He then handed the city over to Raymond of Toulouse, who handed it over to the Greeks. Meanwhile, Winimir, who had fucked off somewhere else, was captured by the Greeks, and then they imprisoned him in the city, you know, the same city that he had given to the guy who'd given it to them. And then Godfrey of Bouillon negotiated his release. There's obviously some confusion here. The thing we have to remember is that Albert doesn't give a fuck about fleets normally, except for Winimir. Why? Probably because Winimir appears to have been from the region controlled by Godfrey of Bouillon's family, and probably connected to Lorrener Lotharingian nobility. Albert not only had close ties himself to these folks, but his sources, other people returning to that region, would also highlight their interactions with fellow Lotharingians. 
So in this way, Windermere gets wrapped up in a bunch of events he wasn't really involved in. Perhaps the only thing he did in Laodicea was be in prison after being captured by the Greeks, maybe for pirating. And then Albert decided to say, oh, and he was there because he'd taken the city. Maybe. So then what really happened? Well, let's talk about our other sources. So Raymond de Vaguilet has a pretty simple version of events. He says a fleet of 30 English boats had answered Pope Urban's call for a crusade way back when and arrived in the Levant before the main army. They had taken Laodicea and St. Simeon prior to the siege of Antioch. Now, this is certainly possible, but there's an additional wrinkle here because Ralph of Gaunt tells us that during the siege of Antioch, Laodicea was held by the English, but not English pilgrims. English in the service of the Roman Emperor, Alexios Komnenos. Remember that after the Norman conquest of England, many of the native Anglo-Saxons had been dispossessed and decided to enter service as Roman Varangians. We know some of these were naval forces, so it's totally possible that Alexios had an English fleet on hand to capture Levantine cities. This take is backed circumstantially by Kemal ad-Din. Remember I told you to remember him? Well, Adin says that Laodicea had been captured on August 19, 1097, before the siege of Antioch. He says 22 ships coming from Cyprus had seized the town. Cyprus was a Byzantine Roman island at this time, so there's a chance that these English pilgrims Raymond talks about had negotiated an agreement with Alexios and then gone to Cyprus and from there attacked Laodicea and maybe St. Simeon as well. Or a bit more likely, if you ask me, these forces were Byzantine all along and had been posted at Cyprus. Then they'd taken Levantine cities in preparation for the crusading army, which was taking the land route. One further wrinkle is that the sources also indicate Robert of Normandy at some point held an important position at Laodicea. If the city had been captured by English pilgrims, then it would make total sense for Robert to take charge there. Robert's father had been William the Conqueror, and his brother was the reigning king of England. Despite Robert's frosty relationship with both the first and second Norman kings of England, he was still a member of the family. However, if the English were Anglo-Saxons who'd fled after the capture, then following a Norman maybe would have been odd, or maybe not. The Norman conquest had been a few decades ago. They might have been Englishmen who had had some sort of noble rank even after the conquest, but also maintained ties with the Anglo-Saxons who'd left and then been inspired to also join the Varangian Guard. I'm just spitballing here. It's hard to know what to make of the situation. But my take is basically that. And the big point to underline here is that Alexios had sent a fleet in advance of the army. Both St. Simeon and Laodicea were key to keeping the Crusaders at Antioch supplied. Which, by the way, might be why Raymond of Aguilar says the English fleet was made up of pilgrims, not Roman mercenaries. He hated the Romans. Either way, the role of Cyprus alone indicates that the Latin-Roman alliance was still strong as 1097 came towards a close. The army was still depending heavily on Roman support, and still allowing them to call the shots. That would change, though. As I said in the opening, the extreme circumstances at Antioch would push the situation to a breaking point. Next time on History of the Utremer, the second part of the Siege of Antioch, when shit hits the fan.